Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we get going today, I want to let you all know that this week is our member drive week. It's a week where we're asking all of our listeners to go to strongstowns.org, uh, click on membership in the upper right-hand corner and sign up to become a member. 2021 is our year of action. And what we are focused on this year, what we are celebrating this year, are all the people in this broad, huge and fast growing movement who are out there doing amazing things, uh, doing amazing work. On this podcast, we talk about ideas, but throughout our organization, we're not only talking about ideas, we're focusing on helping people, giving people the tools that they need, the tools that they're asking for, the support that they need to get out and, and, and make their places better, make positive change from the bottom up. Strong Towns is a bottom up revolution. It's a revolution that is starting at the block level. And it takes individuals, not only as, as individuals with a, with a vision and a dream, uh, but individuals banding together and working together to improve their block, to improve their neighborhood, to improve their cities. We've been overwhelmed by the number of people who have stepped up in not just the last year, but, but in many, many years before this, stepped up and, and, and really taken the Strong Towns approach and put it to work in their place. These are the heroes. And if you want to support them, if you want to support the work that they're doing, if you want to help get them more content, more resources, more how-to guides, more checklists, more, uh, you know, more of everything that is going to be the catalyst, the thing that they need to help them be change makers. Take a moment, go to strongtowns.org, click on membership. We don't have any set dollar amount. Uh, we have people who give us uh, five bucks a year. We have people who give us 200 bucks a month, whatever it is your level that you can afford, go and, and be part of this movement, be part of this change, help us and help the people who are out there, maybe even in your city, uh, working in the trenches to try to make things just a little bit better. Thanks everybody. And uh, on to the show. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. You know, I've been doing the podcasting thing, I think since like 2009 or 2010. It's been a long time. We have uh, something like 600 episodes now. I, I don't, I don't even keep track. Like I don't, I don't know exactly how many, but I can tell you that starting off, uh, it was, did not take long of doing this podcast where people would say, Chuck, you need to be doing video. Videos, where's the action is at? That video is what everybody wants to see. And, and I would try to explain to people, like, I'm not good at video. And they would say, oh, no, you, you really need to be doing it. That's what the kids these days want. They want video. And I, I stink at it. I mean, I've tried it in, in multiple ways, and I'm, I'm not good at it. There's an art to it. There is an uh, aspect to it that I just, I'm just not good at. Do you know who is good at it? A website called Not Just Bikes, which you, if you've been following Strong Towns, you have probably run across Not Just Bikes. I ran across them out of the blue because they did a thing on Strong Towns. And I got a hold of the guy who runs Not Just Bikes, Jason Slaughter. And I said, dude, like, who are you? What's up? And now we have the privilege to be able to chat with Jason and find out all the answers to all of our questions. Jason, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. 
Thanks so much, Chuck. It's great yeah. to be here. And we're not doing video here. We're we, you and I can see each other on Zoom, but we're just doing audio today. <laughs> uh, That's all right. Most of the time, people only hear my voice anyway. Is the last name Slaughter? Is that how I would say it? It is Slaughter. That's yeah, just how it's pronounced. And that's not a Dutch name. Uh, that is certainly not a Dutch name. No, that's an English name. I think before we get too deep into this, I want people to know your backstory. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Tell us about like your life before you became an adult. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I grew up in a town in uh, Canada called London, uh, London, Ontario. It's your fairly standard mid-size North American city. It's got about uh, 300, 350,000 people, maybe a little more these days. It was a little less when I was growing up. What's interesting about London is that it's like one big suburb. It's just suburb for the whole for the whole city. Anyway, that's that's what I grew up with. When when I went to university, I was looking at where I was going to go. I did a lot of internships, uh, so I, I worked in uh, various different cities, uh, including the Bay Area, California. And when I was graduating, I was looking at where I wanted to go and what was interesting to me. And, uh, you know, I wanted to move to the big city, so I, I moved to Toronto. I always really liked big cities. That was my thing. You know, it was like I didn't want to be in the small town, London, Ontario. I mean, that's still not a small town, um, certainly not by Brainerd. Uh, no, uh, not by the size that I'm used to. Metrics. <laughs> but I was always about the big city. And yeah, so then I had lived in San Francisco and I had lived in uh, various cities in Canada and, and then I lived in Toronto. And my wife and I really wanted to live internationally. So we were trying to move to various different cities and we ended up living in London, England. You know, that's the big city of all big cities, um, right. at least is. in the Western world. In the Western world, yeah. So that was exciting. We loved London and, and that was great. Um, we had an opportunity to move to Taipei for a while. Uh, that was also fantastic. I love Taipei. This is all relevant to the conversation here because um, I had all this experience and I had lived in all these different places and I got a job where I was traveling constantly. There was actually about a five year period where I wasn't in the same time zone for more than about three weeks. So sure. like, that's an excessive amount of traveling. That I is. had gold status on two different airlines. Um, <laughs> very often did round the world uh, trips uh, for, for business. Tell you know, everybody what you were doing. What is your education in? And then what's your professional job? Yeah, so my education is in electrical engineering. At that time, when I was traveling so much, I was working in the semiconductor industry as a, as a product manager. So I was living in the UK, working, living in London, working in Cambridge. Uh, my boss was in Palo Alto, California. I had an office of people in Taiwan as well. And I, and I went to work out of that office for a while. And yeah, I mean, I was traveling around to see suppliers. I was traveling around to see customers. Um, and I was constantly going between different cities on a regular basis, but drastically different cities. You know, it wasn't just like North American travel, US travel or something like that, or just European travel. I would go from London to Palo Alto to Houston to Seoul to Tokyo. And, you know, this would all be within the space of like three or four weeks. And I guess what I started to see was just how different all of these places were. And that was amazing to me because, you know, I came from this little suburban city and, uh, and it was incredible to see how different things were done all over the world. I think where this all kicked off really was one time when I was in Houston. So I was on a round the world tour, going to several different cities. 
And I was in a hotel in Houston because we were supposed to, I believe we were going to see HP, who have an office outside of there, Hewlett Packard. Right. Mm-hmm. I was there with a couple of coworkers. They had the car. We had a rental car, of course. They had taken the car. And I and I was stuck in this in this uh, hotel in Houston. I think you can probably see where this is going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I needed new luggage. And there was a luggage shop that sold the brand that I wanted 800 meters from my hotel. And I said, all right. I don't have the car. It's fine. It's 800 meters. I'm going to go. You know, I lived in central London. This was 800 meter walk was nothing. I, I did this yeah. without even thinking about it. It's less than lunch. half a mile. You can do this. I know. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> you'd think that I could do that. Anyway, I started out on this walk and there was no sidewalk. And I was walking along what I now know as a strode. Mm-hmm. Thanks to you. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it was really uncomfortable. I have to say it was incredibly uncomfortable. And the sidewalk appeared and then it disappeared. And then I got to this stretch that was over a uh, rail line where there was a bridge and the sidewalk basically became, I don't know, it was about five centimeters right. of, of just concrete <laughs> there that, that would, you know, it was really just a curb. It wasn't a sidewalk anymore. And I was literally shimming along this thing uh, with cars whipping by at 80, 100 kilometers an hour. And I was like, I clearly remember this. I said to myself, if I live through this, I want to live wherever the opposite of this place is. <laughs> uh, yes. And I live in Amsterdam now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but that's where it all started. And so I did survive, obviously. I made it to the luggage shop uh, and I took a taxi home. Right. Um, because half a I mile. would be insane. Right. Yes, right. half a mile. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. and, and, and that was where all of this sort of kicked off, is that I was like, Okay, why why is it like this? Like, why why was this eight hundred meter walk like literally death defying? And why is it that if I did an eight hundred walk in like you know Seoul, South Korea, it would be incredibly pleasant and wonderful? Actually, not only would it not be deadly, it would be enjoyable. Let me ask you this: I don't want to pretend that I'm like Oprah or anything here, psychoanalyzing you, but I, I do feel like <laughs> you, you've had two experiences that merge together. The one is the electrical engineering mind, which is really a, and, and I don't, you know, I don't want to impose on you because I've met all kinds of engineers with all kinds of different mindsets, but there is yeah. something about the engineering mindset that is a problem solver, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Analyzing rational, like, let me try to solve, solve a problem. Also the fact that you have this rich data set of places now that you've seen and experienced and not experience them as a tourist per se. No, no. I mean, I, that's the big I, difference. Like right. I've been going to the places where people work. So I would go out to their place of work uh, and I would see where they work and I would live. Uh, you know, I sometimes I'd even have extended trips where I would be staying in a residential area in, in you know, Taipei or something like that. Right. Tell me a little bit about the engineering mindset and I guess how you... You, you you describe this trip in Houston, but my, my guess is that it's also not the first time you've been like, what the F is going on in this place? <laughs> like, like, I don't get, this had to have been like, you know, maybe the road to Damascus moment, but also with a lot of discernment there along the way. How does your background and, and, and training and, and your work as a, as a engineer and that kind of mindset help you break down or, or help you maybe, let me, let me put it this way. How much of a hindrance was it for you to actually have this epiphany? But then once you did, like how powerful is uh, 
the analytical side of this, as opposed to what I hear from a lot of people is, oh, I just don't like it. It's not pretty. It's not this right. and that. I feel like the, the thing that makes your stuff powerful is that it really gets beyond that aesthetic thing and, and into something deeper. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, I haven't thought too much about it. I don't know if, about the analytical mind, but I suppose it helps in breaking down exactly why all of this stuff happens and breaking through some of the I guess the nonsense um, of it, some of the emotion of it, to look at like where this stuff actually comes from. Like what were the decisions that led up to this? Because this wasn't an accident. Like that, that place in Houston was not designed that way by accident. And, and so I think perhaps that has colored the way I look at it. I mean, I think when I look at things on my channel, there's a couple of things that I've done with every video, intentionally or unintentionally. It, I've tied a lot of things back to stories of things that I've experienced myself. And so each one of them, not each one of them, but many of them start with some sort of thing that I experienced myself. And then it goes through the process of how I broke that down into, you know, why, why did this happen? What, why, why did I have this experience? And what were the things that led up to it and the decisions that led up to it and the regulations that led up to it and the engineering that led up to it and everything else. So I think that's valid. But honestly, I haven't thought too much about it. I mean, I think maybe that's just the way it spills out because of my engineering background. I, I feel like that part of it is what, to me, makes it so relatable is that you are explaining things. I've got a couple more questions along these lines, but I want to save those. Let me ask you this about just the process. At what point then after Houston did you say, I need an outlet for this, uh, mm. these insights? And why did you pick video the way you did. Yeah, I mean, it's a long gap between those two events. When when I had that experience in Houston, I honestly had never thought about city design ever before. It just it never occurred to me to even look into it. It was just something that you ex it was there and it was somebody else's job, not mine. And I think then is when I started reading about it and I started reading about urban planning, even finding out what urban planning was all about and traffic engineering and everything else. And I started digging into that and sometime around you know, 2013, I came across Strong Towns. And I think that's for me where a lot of this really clicked because there was this feeling that I had and this basic understanding of urban planning that I have. But then like Strong hunch. Towns, yeah, the hunch. And then Strong Towns comes along and I'm like, oh my God, yes, yes, this is exactly, this is exactly it. Um, so the the video came quite a lot later though, because this channel is fairly new. It's It's only been around since what, like October 2019 now? Right. So it's right. not even two years. Right. Um, so when we had lived in different cities, we used to keep blogs, right? So I have one from when we lived in Taiwan, I have one from when we lived in London, and we had one from when we when we moved back to Toronto, because what happened to us is that we had lived in London, we'd lived in, in Taiwan, back to London, uh, we had our first child in London, then moved to Brussels, had our second child in Brussels, and we said, okay, you know, now we've got two young kids. We're far away from family. We're here in Belgium. We don't know anybody. We have no close friends. We had friends, but no close friends. And we said, I think maybe it's time to stop this gallivanting around the world and let's go back to Canada. And so we did, we moved back to Toronto. And I think that's where a lot of this started too. So then we had a blog about um, car-free living in Toronto that was called, uh, but how do you buy groceries? because that was the number one question we got asked um, when people found right. out we didn't own a car. <laughs> literally the number one question to say, but how do you buy groceries? I'm like, uh -huh. as if you literally cannot feed yourself without right. two tons of steel, but that's, uh -huh. 
That's <laughs> a comical. So we had these blogs, right? And the blogs, you know, they were they were fine. We had a Twitter account. You know, we would just do the, do this stuff. But you know, now you say we nope. is your wife a partner wife in this I, at yes. this point? My okay. wife is a partner of this, absolutely. And she's actually the advocate. Uh, I have to say, like, I am not. Um, I am not the kind of person that advocates for things. It's just, it's not in my nature because I do the research. I find out what the right answer is. And then I'm like, okay, everybody, let's do the right thing now. And I, I don't have the ability. <laughs> I, just, I think this is why you and I get along because when I, I started so. writing the blog, it's like, okay, if I just show people what's obvious, they'll do the know, obvious right? thing. And they'll all look at the data and there it is. Right. <laughs> oh, we were wrong all along. Oh, we're so naive. <laughs> I know, right? But right. I mean, so this is the thing. So yeah, my wife mostly ran uh, the blog. I, I did the Twitter account um, and, and that was fine. That was kind of an outlet. But, you know, moving back to Toronto after having all of this world experience and living in all these, these great world cities, it was, it was difficult. It, there was definitely a reverse culture shock. There was, um, in many different ways, there was the idea that it's like, you know, we'd be telling a story and somebody would say, oh, you're just bragging about all the places you've gone. And I'm like, no, yeah. I'm just telling you the story. And it took place there. Like, it's yeah. literally just that. Um, but there was also this whole coming back to a car centric place was hard, um, harder than, than I thought it would be because we lived in a, in a relatively, well, f very walkable area for, for nor by North American standards, but still you you have to interact with the rest of the city. And that was incredibly difficult. So I was done after about a year. It took my wife uh, another year after that before she was done. She became a bicycle advocate. She uh, joined the board of directors of Cycle Toronto, for instance. And she was very much into that. But I was just like, forget this. Like, I don't need to live here. I've lived all over the world. Why do I need to live here? Uh, and, um, and so we had done the blogging thing. And the, I mean, our whole story really just comes out of that. It's that we got fed up with it. But then my wife and I sat down and said, look, we cannot keep moving around the world all the time. We got kids now. We can't just keep moving every every year or two. We have to find a place. So if we're moving, we have to move for good. We can't be moving and then decide, oh, I don't know about this. Maybe two years later, we'll want to move again. So we, she said, you got to do your research. You got to come and you got to say, no, this is the place. And for these reasons, and this is what we're going to do. So that began a process of uh that took a, a little over a year of like looking around all the going through all the places that we've ever visited because we've been my wife's been to 60 countries i've been to 59. um we've spent a lot of places uh, we've been to hundreds of cities literally hundreds right. of cities so did you um, do so, did you do this as an engineer then did you create like a ranking system and all that basically yeah, yeah i mean <laughs> you, know, you know it <laughs> we we went through this too where we were like okay we we're, we're moving from brainerd and, uh, you know, we said, here's our criteria and then came up yeah. with, yeah. So you did this whole thing. Yeah, basically. And we shortlisted a list of cities based on that. And then we took vacations of two weeks in each one of the cities. We stayed there in two weeks in an Airbnb in a residential neighborhood and said, pretended we lived there. And we said, yeah. like, could we live in this place? Yeah. Um, with kids. Yeah, so like with kids, too, at this point. Yeah. With kids yeah. at this point, too. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so, like, for instance, we did that with Copenhagen um, when we were there in Copenhagen. We thought maybe we could live there. We did it with uh, Amsterdam. We, we went to Harlem, too, uh, in the Netherlands. And we ultimately decided on the Netherlands. That was the place for us for a variety of different reasons. And so yeah. when we moved, there were all of these questions from from all our friends in Canada, of course, but also the people we were meeting in the Netherlands, people were asking, why the hell would you move to the Netherlands? Like, 
like you're Canadian. Canada is a great country and it is a great country. It's a beautiful country. I love it. I'm glad I'm very proud to be Canadian. But, um, and and, you know, it's funny because Americans would, my American friends would ask me this too, because as you know, every time something really bad politically happens in America, the Google searches for how to move to Canada, just skyrocket right right, right. I mean, so they're like what but like that's the place we want to go when we're in a bad mood why do right. you why are you leaving right <laughs> so that is why i started not just bikes and that's where it all finally comes together so i was going to start a blog and i actually started a twitter account and i was going to start a blog but then it occurred to me like man blogs are just so 2007 you know yeah. like <laughs> am i really going to start a blog in 2019 right and, and I started the, uh, I decided to do the YouTube channel, but the point of the channel was to answer the question, why did we move to the Netherlands? So it was basically taking all that research that we had done and all that experience that I had had and putting it together for somebody who was in my same situation. So basically me 20 years ago, that's who my target was. Yeah. So, and to say, um, this is what I wish I could have seen 20 years ago, uh, so that I could save all this time and effort and just know that this is, this is what I wanted. So that was the point. And I was going to make, you know, 10 videos or something like that on a variety of different things. Like kids have more independence and it's walkable. And, you know, the basically like the first videos of my channel. And obviously what happened is it got a little bit more popular than I thought it was. More than like 15 people read it on like my blog. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So not just bikes, Tell me a little bit why that that fr- that particular framing. Yeah. So, um, well, I I had always worked alongside marketing, so I always thought about if I was going to do something, I was going to put a proper name on it and a proper brand and everything else. And I mean, that's exactly why we came up with the name. But how do you buy groceries? Because it's one of these things that's a bit hard to forget, and it's kind of gets right. you in there. Um, so I wanted something that was short and punchy, but it it comes out of. Um, because when people in Canada would, you know, the people would, some people would ask us, why would you move? Other people would say, oh, I know why you guys move because you like your bicycles. Mm-hmm. And it's really not about the bicycles. Like, I, I actually don't believe that you should be trying to build a cycling city. I believe the level of cycling is a metric that shows you're on the right path, but that's not the actual goal. So, at the end of my very first video, I give the hint as to where the name comes from, because I believe the exact words I said were because there's a lot of good reasons why Dutch cities are so great. And it's not just bikes. Yeah, that's really where it comes from. Like when you think of the Netherlands, when you think of Amsterdam, you think of the bicycles. And yes, there are lots of people who cycle here, but that's not the point. That's not, not they didn't even plan to build a cycling city here. When you look at the history of the city, Uh, from the 1970s. Like when you look at pictures of Amsterdam in the 1970s, it looks identical to the UK in the 1970s. And if it weren't for the architecture, it would look the same as London, Ontario and Toronto in the 1970s. I mean, it's, it's identical. It's full of cars. It's, you know, there's hardly anybody on bicycles. And when they started the change in the 70s and in the 80s, it wasn't to build a cycling city. It was actually... Uh, came out of safe streets. That's that's what it came from. It was the stop the Kindermord movement, and it was the the happening at the same time as the oil crisis. And it was about saying that you know we're we're sick of this city being overrun by cars and being unsafe, and kids literally being killed in the streets. I mean that's what stop the Kindermord means is literally stop the child murder. 
Um, and, which and is a very, which a... is a very like nice passive Canadian way to to frame something, right? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I can't imagine that working here in your culture I, or mine no, in Canada. Or, I just right. No, why did it work there? I don't know exactly why it worked here, uh, because if you look at the history of most places, there were protests in the 70s, pretty much any city you name along the same lines, like we're sick of people being killed because there were still enough people who had grown up with something different and they'd seen the change in their lifetime and they knew that it could be changed. So I think part of it was the fact that it happened in the 70s, but again, other cities did it too. I I don't know, I, maybe they were just more adamant about it. Maybe they pushed harder. Maybe it was just luck. I honestly don't know. Uh, because again, like there were certainly protests in the seventies in Toronto about, um, about safe streets and being able to walk safely and cycle safely and everything else. You're right in that, you know, if something bad happens here. Everyone's like, let's, you know, we're moving to Canada as if Canada is yeah. this country with, you know, no racism. Everyone joins hands together across the street and, know, you know, exactly helps old right. ladies. And I, Canada is a beautiful place. I mean, I love going to Canada and I, I think people there are generally very kind and nice and generous, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it does feel like uh, stop the child murder. Maybe in the 1970s, this was, would be more compelling to them, but, but today, this would not work in Minnesota, which is a nice, genial kind of place. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would mm -hmm. work in Canada. You know, I I know plenty of of Dutch people, and they're very kind, generous people. But I, it's interesting to me why this would take there, and not mm -hmm. in not in other places. There were other factors as well. Like they were bulldozing a lot of houses to build um, motorways here, the same as there were in in North America. And I mean, in, in Toronto, that was successful for what it's worth. Like Jane Jacobs herself was in Toronto and she stopped, helped to stop the Spadina Expressway, which would have bulldozed right. what are some of the most beautiful neighborhoods in the city now. So I think it was some of these things coming together. But what I have noticed with the, uh, with the protests in the Netherlands, when I've, the, because there is film of it, it was a lot more violent than what you saw in, in other places in, um, in Canada or the US. Like, there were literally riots, uh, like there were the new marked riots that were about the metro that was going in and the highways that were bulldozing houses. And they were literal riots, like the police came out with water cannons to, to blast yeah. the rioters away. So th there may have honestly been an element of that. But the other thing that's interesting is that when you look at the history, the votes in city council were won by like one vote. You know, it, it wasn't like a landslide. It's not like the city councilors all said, yes, we're all going to change what we do. And, it, you know, it was 93 to one or something. I mean, it, literally uh, these votes that stopped the highways bulldozing Amsterdam uh, and and some of these other stopped some of these other damaging practices were literally won by one or two votes in city council. So yeah. I, I do think that there is an element of of luck in there, too, that it right. just the right people were in city council at the right time. Yeah. Um, and it was certainly not an inevitability. And I, I think actually this is one of these things that I do get awfully tired. I've set myself up for it, creating this channel now, but I do get awfully tired talking about this because there's people just fundamentally don't understand Amsterdam at all. They don't understand the history. They don't understand how it works. They'll immediately assume it's, it's because of the culture or because it's flat or because of the weather or whatever. But I think what was really interesting to me is living in Brussels um, because I think almost... Like this couldn't have come together for me if I hadn't lived in Brussels because Brussels is a very car centric city for Europe by European standards. Sure. And 
they certainly did bulldoze lots of buildings and widen lots of roads. And uh, we own two cars. The only place that our family has ever owned two cars was in Brussels, um, which is also kind of ridiculous. But uh, we owned two cars because both of us worked in places that were not accessible by transit. And Brussels was just pretty horrible at times. Like we got stuck in traffic a lot, like really, really bad traffic, um, just trying to go about our lives doing normal things. And we're just constantly stuck in traffic and there are huge wide roads and there are drivers that would blow through the crosswalks and and it's like right nearby like it's I can get there in just a couple hours it's very close it's got very similar history and culture and and it turned out differently and I look at it and I think you know if those couple of votes in city council weren't there Amsterdam would have been Brussels and I think that's really interesting to see because it's really, really not as simple as people make it out to be. Like there were decisions and there that were made and there were changes that were made that made the city the way it is. And yeah. I think that's lost on a lot of people. Um, and I am hoping that that's the kind of information that I can put out there because I think just most people just don't know that. Why would you know that? There's, there's no reason for most people to know that. Right. So you looked at the situation and said, a blog is, uh, I'm competing with <laughs> 10 gazillion blogs and yeah, I want but also more. it just felt so old. Felt, I, I, I don't know. Try. I need to get into this, uh, you know, where the kids are today. Let's, I'm yeah, not going to do TikTok, but I'll do YouTube. <laughs> but the kids were on YouTube like thir uh, 2013. So I was right. already late, but you You're know, late to that. I'm, I'm Gen X. Yeah. So I, uh -huh. <laughs> it takes me a little while to get this stuff. <laughs> so, so yeah. what, what gave you the confidence to think you could do video? I will say this as my own personal failings. I, I feel like one of the, the the great attributes I have is that I know my own limitations and <laughs> I've goofed around with video and I'm like, yeah, this isn't good. Your stuff is fantastic. I mean, I, I love it. Like it is very, very high quality uh, work. T tell us a little bit about how you got to that. You know, I honestly don't have a good answer for that. Um, I had done a tiny amount of video work related to my work my job because every once in a while we might need to put a video together but it was you know this is a semiconductor company selling chips uh, to other engineers but uh, maybe we have to convince their managers so we put a fancy video together about how our tech works that we can pass around i mean that was the sum total of my video experience yeah so i can't give you a good answer as to why i thought i could do video if, if anything i actually think it was that it was done out of pure ignorance of what i was actually getting into because if i had done even a shred of you know market research into what I was getting into, I probably wouldn't have started the channel. Like I knew there was a channel called Bicycle Dutch. It's a great channel right. and yeah, well is. worth yeah. watching. Yep. Um, and it's been around forever, like 10 years at least. And I knew about Di Bicycle Dutch, but for instance, I didn't know about City Beautiful, which is a very excellent um, urban planning channel. Um, yep. Didn't even know about it. Like I literally did no research going into this because for me, I was making these videos for fun and videos that I could send to my friends in Canada or, you know, show to somebody here and say, ah, look at this. Isn't this neat? Look at, look at, look at, right. there's like five grocery stores within a 500 meter walk. Isn't that cool? Well, and your um, target audience is Jason 20 years ago. Exactly. Which right. I, I, I've always said my target audience is my dad, you know? Yeah, there you go. Right. And, and, and I don't really you need care. a target audience. You do need a target audience. Right. Yeah. Cause that helps you like focus your, yep. what you're doing. Right. So that was it. I mean, it was really that it was that I, it was that I had, uh, I think it was about 6,000 followers on Twitter. I knew there was this Twitter audience that I had. 
And I had made some videos in Twitter, but there you can only make them 140 seconds long. So it was really just that. It was that uh, I want to make something longer. I'll put it on my Twitter account. Those people will share it and that will be the end of it. And from the Twitter audience, I got an audience of 600 on YouTube. So that was like a, a good start. Right. Uh, so about one tenth of them came over. Um, but but what changed was that the YouTube algorithm in, I mean, YouTube's a funny thing. It's, it's actually really interesting to see it from the other side about how it all works. Because obviously I've used YouTube for a long time. Right. I had a YouTube account from before Google bought them. And I had uploaded, you know, little stupid little things to YouTube as people used to do in, you know, 2008. I never really saw what it was like on the other side of YouTube. And that's right. been really interesting. It's actually, um, there was a time when, um, when I was working part-time and I had my own company selling things on Amazon. And it was the same kind of experience, like seeing Amazon from the point of view of the seller was just a totally different world. It was amazing to see. Uh, and it was, it was the same thing with YouTube. You really are a slave to this well, not a slave, I'd say. Yeah, but no, you can when be. we started doing but Facebook, this algorithm. we started doing Facebook marketing and I just like stopped using Facebook. I'm mm -hmm. like, this is, this is freaky. Cause when you are on the other side, I mean, for, it's funny because back in 2016, when the whole, like when Donald Trump was elected and they did this, you know, diagnosis of his election and they're like, you know, Russian bots and trolls out there and they mm -hmm. post stuff. And then when you click on it, they follow up with things and it's like evil voice, you know, over and all this and I'm like, my gosh, we've been doing that for like four years on Facebook. <laughs> and, you know, not using it for evil, but like, you know, you you see that the, the marketing machine that they have yeah. built and YouTube, it's astounding because uh, now that your stuff has really taken off, guess what else has yeah. taken off? All of a yeah. sudden, yeah, it's great. I've got people digging up these videos I did in 2012 that were just hack junk that no one ever watched. And they're, they're messaging me like, your sound quality is really bad. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's 2012. <laughs> yeah, like I know it. That's why I didn't make any videos for five years. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, the algorithm is a funny thing because what happened to my channel is I started in, in October. Yeah. Uh, it got the thousand subscribers that you need for monetization in January. And of yeah. course, Google is an advertising company. Right. They, they want to promote the stuff that makes them money. So mm -hmm. now that I was monetized, their algorithm could promote me. And around the end of January, uh, it, they suddenly pushed it out. They pushed it out to people in the Netherlands because I was in the Netherlands physically. I had a Netherlands account. So they sent it to other people in the Netherlands. Right. Um, which, you know, my target audience was me 20 years ago. It was not some Dutch person who's hardly right. left the Netherlands. Um, right. And when it hit that, it took off like crazy with Dutch people who were like, wow, I never realized this was special. Like, I didn't realize this That's was a thing. And so that had never occurred to me. Yeah. And it never once occurred to me in making these videos that yeah. I naively assumed that Dutch people knew what, how things worked here. But right. that was naive because I didn't know how urban planning worked in London, Ontario, you know? So right. I, I, but it never occurred to me. So it became incredibly popular, incredibly popular with Dutch people. And it was about 67 to 70% of the audience was Dutch. And the videos really took off and they started being shared in um, Dutch language place, uh, uh, sites. I was interviewed on the public radio. Uh, no I kidding. Various, really? Yeah, I had, yeah, I had, um, <laughs> You're I like had an a article. Dutch celebrity now. It's crazy. They call it Bekende Nederlander, uh, which okay. is like a, a known, uh, a well-known Dutch person, I guess is how you would, uh, but yes. So people yeah. joke that I'm now Bekende Nederlander, but, um, and I've been, I've been recognized on the street. 
uh, which is cool. kind of crazy because I don't even show my face that often in my videos. Right. Um, so it's kind of crazy that I've been recognized. But I had a a a full like two page centerfold article on me in the in the local newspaper in the Dutch uh, well national newspaper. Yeah. So. That was something that really took me by surprise uh, that so many Dutch people were interested in this because they either didn't have the experience with the US and Canada and just didn't know. And they were like, wow, this is crazy. Or, and this was actually quite common, they had been to the US, or, um, usually the US, sometimes Canada. They had maybe family there or something. And they had that same feeling that I had of like, this is wrong. This doesn't feel right. But I don't know why. Like, I can't express why this is wrong. But, you know, they would go there, they'd go to their family's house, they had a big, huge house in the suburbs. But then they also would be like, we have to drive everywhere. Why is this? Like, the, why can't we just walk? And they're like, no, 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 you can't walk. You can't walk. Right. Um, and so it it was amazing. The the pop most of the popularity in the early days and the channel came from from Dutch people. And then so the second big boost in popularity came when I uh, made the growth Ponzi scheme video. Yeah. And I did not expect that. The channel was supposed to just be why we moved to the Netherlands. That was it. And it was supposed to be like 10 videos, 12 videos, whatever, done. And then I was going to go on and do something, some other hobby, maybe model trains or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once it took off and Dutch people were interested, I thought, well, I can explore some of these topics some more. Um, but then I started thinking, you know what? All of this stuff that I know now about cities comes from the things I learned about urban planning. Like when I learned about what walkability was. You know, this is something I'd never known before, What that that's even a term or a thing. I didn't know about like how uh, the, the building height to the building width changes the way you feel about the street or any of these things, right? right. The the 85% uh, rule for setting speed limits, you know, I didn't know any of this stuff. So then what I said was after I had done the first year, I said, what I'm going to do for my second year is I'm going to do sort of urban planning fundamentals. Like I'm going to pick a thing, the missing middle, right? Yeah. This is a thing. Yeah. It's a thing that urban planners talk about, and I'm going to make a video about it. So for the second year, I said, okay, I'm going to go through all of my urban planning fundamentals. And one of the things I thought I was going to do is strong towns, right? Because I thought, you know, strong towns is great. Love strong towns. I've been reading your stuff at least since 2013. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, so I'm going to go through it. I'm going to, you know, I, I said, I'm going to do the growth Ponzi scheme. I'm going to do the strode. I'm going to do the, you know, uh, the, some that I haven't got to yet, like your article about uh, the urban three stuff. Right, um, right. I actually had a call scheduled with them and then totally missed it because I was busy oh. with something else. So yeah, I know it's too bad, yeah. but I, I, I have to get in touch with them. So I, I want to do some urban three related videos. Yeah. And so I did the introduction to strong towns and I did the traditional development and they, they were reasonably popular. Like they definitely brought in a lot more Americans, but then when the growth Ponzi scheme video came out, that was just, it just blew up. And that's where the channel just went absolutely insane. Yeah. Because that started getting passed around on the internet. It was all over Reddit. It was all over Facebook. And that's actually been a little bit scary because now the the audience is primarily American. Uh, Duchess, uh, Netherlands is still number two, but Americans are now the, the largest uh, demographic. I think it's like 25% or something like that. Wow. The problem is, is that now I've opened myself up to a world full of hurt because yeah. now I get like <laughs> angry American suburbanites coming in. <laughs> And, and I've yeah. had to deal with the absolute dumpster fire that is American politics. So uh -huh. I actually had to set blocked words on the channel. Republican and Democrat are blocked words on the channel. Because yeah. if you talk about that, it's just not going to go anywhere. Yeah, like, it's just going to be horrible. So right. I, I, I don't want to get into that. I don't live in that country. That's not my politics. 
I don't want to deal with it. So I've had to deal with a lot of hate mail since, since that stuff came through. Yeah. But uh, the response from people has been really overall pretty good. Um, because just like me, when I first saw the, the Strode articles and the growth Ponzi scheme articles, when I first read them, that was the thing that everything just clicked in place, right? It was like all of this, the, these thoughts that I had from all over, these experiences that I had, they all sort of came together at that point. And I think it has for a lot of my viewers now too. Yeah. They're like, um, and I've had people thank me, not that I deserve it, uh, that, uh, that, oh, thank you for telling me what a Strode is. Because now I know that that now this all makes sense, right? So that's right. why I like this downtown street, but I don't like this suburban Strode. Yeah. When we first started Strong Towns, and and you know I'm I'm listed as the founder. There were three founders. There were a couple other guys who helped hmm. me get this whole thing started. And, and in the very early days, we always said like our goal is to go away, is to not be needed anymore because our, yes. the stuff we're putting out there is so self-evident that everyone just accepts it and, and, and it comes the basis of our understanding. Um, I do have to say, it has been charming for me, or I've, I've appreciated the kind of co-mingling of your work and our work. And people uh, who have on Twitter now said, you know, have you seen like Strong Towns? They're copying not just bikes and the stuff they put out. And, oh, and they'll say, you know, they, they actually refer to you as like the guy who's, uh, you know, exposing these things. And I'm there's a part of me that's like that. That's winning to me. Like that is mm -hmm. OK. Now now we've reached some place where these ideas have, have started to transcend. Yeah, that so, you don't need to be the one to do it all the time. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I feel bad because I, I hear I've built up now a, a decade plus of taking the uh, the junk, the garbage that goes along with it, because there's a lot mm -hmm. of there's a there's a long tail of garbage that goes along. with Oh, it. yeah. But, you know, you also and this has made me happy. I, I think you also see the beauty that comes along with it, too. People who will say, like, thank you. I never thought of it this way. And you've, you know, in a sense, like helped me see something in front of me and I feel like a better person now. I, I get more messages than I can respond to each day uh, thanking me for sure. Um, and that's yeah. just blows me away because that was obviously never the intention here. I was just putting information out in a fun way and that's it. Like I had no other goal in mind. Um, but and it, it, that is really nice to see. Yeah. Um, for sure. Now, it does make me feel a bit weird. I, I, I feel like the success of this channel, at least um, the recent success since since the growth Ponzi scheme has been a lot of just copying Strong Town's homework, right? Like I'm basically <laughs> just, I'm basically, oh, there's the article. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to turn that into a video. And Dude, hey, look at that. <laughs> but great artists steal. I mean, that's the thing is that I, I think, you know, yeah. and, and, and the thing is, is like, you're actually taking stuff that I uh, learned and, and pieced together from other people and you're introducing it to like a whole new audience. And I, mm -hmm. I feel like that is a service to mankind. I mean, it really is. I'm so happy that you're doing it. It really means a lot. No, um, that's good. I, I want to ask you a, a couple follow-up to things you said earlier. And, and yeah. I'll start with like the hardest one. You talked a little bit, not nostalgically, but, but retrospectively about the 1970s in the Netherlands and the debate they had. And, and you brought up Brussels Part of the vibe I got from that conversation was that you almost suggest that it would be harder to do today. And I think you said something along the lines of, you know, the people who remembered what it were what it was like were still alive mm -hmm. then. Yeah. How much of this is you grew up in London, Ontario, 
And you never even imagined there could be something different, let alone when you saw it, like recognize that this was a choice. Is it too late for Brussels? Is it too late for London, Ontario? Is it too late for Brainerd? How would we actually, you know, get people to think about this stuff differently? Yeah. So th there's two things in that. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, there's two things in that. One of them is, is that I get kind of angry about this stuff sometimes because I feel like I was almost like I was lied to. Like I was put in this car centric environment and you know, it was fine. It's not like I had a horrible. No, but it, you were told like that, that but, was, this was but great. This is the this way was it the was, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I remember being a bored teenager and having literally nowhere to go because I was trapped in this residential maze. And I remember waiting for the bus that was supposed to come every 45 minutes, but it just wouldn't. Just so I could go downtown to do something other than walk around my suburban neighborhood. And I remember that feeling of just being trapped. And then when I got my license at 16, I was like, oh, I finally can do something. And, you know, I had a friend who crashed his, his Jeep at when he was 17 or something. Um, and that was really bad. I mean, he was OK in the end. But like all of these things happened because it was designed that way. And I feel like I never knew any different and nobody ever told me that it could be different. And I think this is one of these things that I mentioned in my first video is that I kept moving to these big cities, these larger and larger cities, because I thought that I what I, I didn't like small cities or small towns versus big cities. I thought that was what it was. But actually, it was just that these big cities still had walkable cores that hadn't been bulldozed. Like my hometown, I, it makes me angry going downtown because it's mostly surface parking lots. Right. I've been there. It pisses me off. Yeah. Yeah. It should it be gorgeous. Me. It was gorgeous once. It, it right? was. And I look at the pictures of it from even just the 1930s. Like it doesn't have to be that long ago. It was beautiful. Yeah. And I, I the 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 architecture and the buildings and I look at this and think I want to live there. Right. But that place is gone. Like you walk out of the train station in London, Ontario, and it's a surface parking lot. Like, yeah. that's it. Yeah. And, and a four lane road. And and it's like it makes me angry. Um, so that's that's one of the things that's like I get really angry about this because nobody ever told me this, you know. And so that's and that definitely comes through like. <laughs> I, I'm a bit of a jerk in my videos. Like I definitely put in. <laughs> you, you have some self-righteous <laughs> frustration. And oh, I, yeah. I yes. think that but that it comes is, from that. Yeah, it comes from that. I, I feel ripped off too. I, I got the photo of downtown Brainerd. This past month, they have resurfaced two parking lots in downtown. The mm. bank that is like the, you know, the good bank in town, the credit union, and then the city hall parking lot. And they're right next to each other on the most important street in the most important intersection in town. And it makes me sick to my stomach because I know the, the theater, the hotel, the restaurants, all the things that used to be there that are bulldozed yeah. for those two parking lots. And it, it, yeah. it makes you feel like you were sold up a bill of goods. You're in this con game and you're the one that got conned. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I, and I, that is where a lot of my anger that comes through in the videos comes from. It really is. I feel like, I feel like my town was robbed and um, yeah, I'm just, ang I'm angry about that. Like yeah. legitimately angry about that. Uh, because when when I had traveled around all these different cities they were, and they were all so different and interesting or, or not, I, I never knew that they all used to actually be really interesting and unique and vibrant right. places, but some of them just aren't anymore. Right.
that angers me. Um, so that's one thing. But the the other thing you touched on is is there hope for these places? And this is actually something that I'm having a lot of trouble with because I get people literally every day asking me, oh my God, I've seen your stuff. I understand this. What can I do in my city to make things better? And I forward these people to Strong Towns because I actually think the Strong Towns is doing the best work in this regard. Like the things that you talk about uh, is the way to get things done. But it's difficult for me to answer those questions because I gave up. Like, I literally gave up on Canada. That's the truth of the matter. Like, my wife did all of this advocacy. I did a little bit. But I said, forget this. Like, this is not worth my time. I've lived all over the world. I can live wherever I want if if I put my mind to it. It's not that easy to move countries. But, you know, I've had international experience. And I can call up these companies. And I can call up CEOs. And, and I can convince them to hire me. I, I've done it before. And yeah. so I said... I, I don't want to do this. Like, I, I looked at the advocacy that was happening in Toronto and I was like, Sisyphus has better on odds. This, yeah. If we continue on this path, it, my grandkids might have something that's not completely shitty. Mm. Um, but that's where it was. And so for me, I look at this and said, I don't think there is hope for these places. That's why I left, right? That's literally why I said, I can live anywhere I want, I have that privilege. So I'm going to do it. And that's what we did. So when people come and ask me, like, what should they do? I feel really hypocritical telling them, oh, I think you should do this or that or whatever, because I didn't. Right? right. Like I just left. And by the way, my advice often to a lot of people is move, you know, like yeah. you, you, it, it's funny because I, I, I feel like I spent a decade or more in the wilderness kind of with a lot of despair. Like, I don't, I don't know how to fix this stuff. And, and mm -hmm. it's actually kind of been a little bit of like religious, you know, for me, like just, this is my yoke to bear. And so all I'm going to do is try to make it better. And it, it, it seems sometimes my despair sometimes is that it's so inadequate. Um, but yet I also recognize that it's like the only way change has ever happened, right. Is by yeah. this kind of bottom up revolution approach. But Man, I'm with you. This is the thing. I, I talk about these Dutch people in the 70s who were literally throwing bricks through windows of, uh, yeah. of the, of the uh, <laughs> I don't even remember the English word of it, the maculars, the, the estate agents who were, yeah. who were doing the real estate deals for this stuff that was, you know, getting, getting rid of these houses to build highways. They were throwing bricks through their windows. They were fighting the police. And I'm basically just, taking advantage of what they've already done. You know, I'm, I'm not doing any of this myself. Um, now, I, I guess with not just bikes, I'm doing the world of service here. <laughs> but um, but uh, but the truth is, like, I'm just not an advocate. That's just not who I am. Like, uh, right. I, I got so frustrated in Toronto where the city planning would do their research. They, they'd be asked by city council to go do research into something. They, they'd come back with these plans. They were like these nice streetscapes, these all these things that as soon as you learn about urban planning, it's all the stuff you do. And they would come back with this plan. And then the suburban counselors would just say, mm, nah. And that was the end of it. And right. it was just gone. So I, I looked at this and I thought like all of this work and planning and data and everything else just evaporates because some, some suburban car centric counselors just don't care. They just, yeah, we, no. The, the one that drove me on everything. we need $5,000 to do this like very high impact 
high quality, like urban intervention. And they would debate it for hours and hours. And they'd say, can we get it down to like 3000 or 2,500? And how do we cut this? And then the next agenda item would be, you know, $250,000 to study some strode intersection in the middle of nowhere. And they'd be like, yeah, approved, go for it. You know, and just it's, I think people sometimes struggle with strong towns when they approach it very partisan because they hear me very upset with the federal government and the way highways are funded and transportation is funded and, and infrastructure in general is funded. And I know people have been mad at me about my critique of like Biden's infrastructure plan. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's hard because really if it all went away, (laughs) if if all that like went away, things would be (laughs) hard for a while, but then they would be a lot better. And it's hard to, explain that to people, you know, Yeah. without well, sounding especially crazy. When you've got like literal bridges that are cracking and right, right, um, right. Yeah. It's hard for pe- it's people to wrap their heads around that. Okay. Some quick questions then. Question number one, how's your Dutch? Uh, my Dutch is getting pretty good, to be honest. Yes. Uh, did you have any going there or did you no. move to this country? No. So you're like, I'm going here no. speaking English. I'm going to rely on the good graces of their bike system and the fact that they generally all speak English, right? Yeah. So um, you can definitely get by in the Netherlands only speaking English, but you'll live a, uh, let's say, non-authentic life. You'll live this sort of like expat bubble life. Uh, So when we moved here, I was determined to learn Dutch. So before we moved, as soon as it was solidified, I was started learning it. Um, Thankfully, I had learned German in high school. Not that I was ever that great at German, but I could carry on a conversation. She had some of the guttural sounds. You, you... <laughs> well, the grammar and things like that, and some of the words are kind of similar. Okay. Um, Dutch, I Dutch, I think is an easy language to learn. I know the Dutch seem to think it's very hard, but I learned, or at least tried to learn, for many years Mandarin Chinese, and I really stumbled through that. So that's a hard language. So grading um, on a curve: Latin, <laughs> easy, Dutch. <laughs> Not so easy, but hard, but not Mandarin. Okay. Yeah, but not Mandarin Chinese. And uh, <laughs> yeah, my Mandarin Chinese was always really rough. It's and I've lost most of it now. But uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, that but I I was determined. So I did some self study, and then I got a tutor, and I just started speaking it. Um, I used to go two two days a week. Now we go one one day a week for an hour and a half. And sometimes we'll just talk for that hour and a half, and Excellent. that's what's necessary. Yeah, and I've watched a lot of Dutch YouTube videos, um, and I think that helps too. So that was the way I decided to do it, was watching a lot of Dutch content. And just even though I didn't get it at first, I got like 5% of it. Eventually that became 50, even 75, and now it's like 95. So Nice. Yeah. Um, How many kids do you have? Two kids. How old are they? Uh, Two boys. They are 11 and 7. How do an 11 and 7-year-old, what what level of autonomy do they have as, as young men? Uh, compared to what you would have had at 11 and 7. Hmm. I mean, it's night and day. Although I will say that in um, my generation, things were definitely different. Because right. in London, Ontario, there is there was this, um, this base of forest that was near our house that is now all a subdivision. But it was just a random sort of forest within the city. Um, London actually builds itself and has built itself for as long as I've been alive, at least, as the forest city. They call themselves a a city within a forest. Okay. Now, most of those forests have been bulldozed, and I refer to London as asphalt city. Uh, but I, we were allowed to go out into into the forest near our house and stuff like that when when we were younger. Not this young, 
but um, but certainly, but things have changed for sure. Uh, and that's one of the number one things about living here, honestly. Like when it comes down to it, if someone's like, name one reason why why you live here as opposed to, to there. Uh, and it's the independence for children. It makes such a difference. Like when our 11 year old was 10, he was cycling home on his own from school. But even before that, um, and my seven-year-old cycles with us, right? So he'll be on his own bike and he goes on his own. He knows his neighborhood. And there's a study that I found, and I'm going to make a video about it someday, where they looked at uh, children who were driven to school versus children that walked to school. It was, a, I believe it was a Canadian study, actually. And they had the kids draw out the map of their neighborhood. And the kids who were driven to school literally just drew like, house line school. school the kids who walked to school showed like here's the bakery here's my friend's house here's the this and they got all the turns right and everything else my youngest like even when we used to take them around in the the cargo bike the buck feats in toronto because we had a dutch cargo bike in toronto uh he knew every single street name he knew every single turn like if, if you would just dump them there in the neighborhood he could find his way home and that's the same thing here. Like they know every single street, they know every single neighborhood, they know where the good ice cream shops are. And for instance, they go out for their own ice cream. So they'll say it's a nice sunny day, we're at home or something. And they like, hey, can we have ice cream? And I'm like, yeah, well, we don't have any in the freezer. Why don't you just go to the ice cream shop? And so, you know, 10 and seven year old would walk to the ice cream shop by themselves and buy ice cream. And it makes such a difference to their independence, like the way they feel about themselves. And the way that they interact with their city uh, as well. Um, and our our oldest, uh, sometimes we just don't pick him up from school. He'll just go out with his friends. Um, he'll go uh, to the grocery store. He'll pick up some candy. They'll go play hide and seek in the neighborhood or something. And um, and this is in like a dense, busy city, right? They, these these kids are not in some rural farmhouse here running around. They're they're in a in the largest city in the Netherlands, right? And they're free to go do this. And, and it makes such a difference. Um, I just, that, that alone is why we will um, never live anywhere else. Not just bikes. You can follow them on Twitter. I'm not sure if you're on any other social media platform, but for sure you need to subscribe to their channel on YouTube. Jason, I want people to go support you on Patreon as well. That That's mm -hmm. where, where I've gone. I, yeah, I think you're doing amazing. We well. do. So I think much. I think you're doing amazing, amazing work um, for people who want to to take that step, which I think is an important one. Where would they Where would they go to do that? So, uh, well, I say it at the end of every video. I say, uh, if you'd like to support the channel and get access to bonus videos, visit Patreon.com/slash Not Just Bikes. <laughs> and you uh, you do put out <laughs> that extra content, and we do get that. And I think the cool thing too yeah. is you know, you get overwhelmed with comments from the channel and feedback, but you do have like a priority thing for people who are Patreon yeah, supporters. Definitely. And yeah. uh, that's really cool too. So, man. Yeah, that's good. And there's is, one other thing actually that I should it. talk about that I almost never talk about. I have another YouTube channel called NJB Live, where I live stream bicycle rides. So I have, I have a camera set this. up and, um, and I live stream through the city. And so I that's not... Uh, something that is as popular as the other videos, but some people really love that because you get to really see the infrastructures if you're there and ask questions as I'm riding. I have to say, I, I found it charming, but I've also found it a little bit, um, 
not uh, depressing is the wrong word, but like, it's that, <laughs> it's the frustration that I have. Cause like, I would like to bike across town and I really, it's a, it, I mean, I do it. It's not a nice bike. I watch you and I'm like, oh my gosh, it, it's like Mary Poppins land here. Like what is, <laughs> what is going on? This has got to be a cartoon version of reality, but it's your reality now. Right. Yeah. And I, that's part of the reason why I do the NJB live because, um, and uh, or not just bikes on 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 Twitch, uh, because you can get sort of a strange feeling about this that you know Amsterdam maybe it's nice here but it's not nice over there. Um, so I do a lot of rides out to the suburbs, to the end of town, to like the yeah. worst areas, if you will, the absolute worst parts of the city, the equivalent, the literal equivalent of my the the places I walked in Houston, right? Like that kind of far away from the city center, and I show no, it's actually like this is what it's like everywhere and that's honestly one of the biggest differences with cycling in amsterdam or the netherlands well the netherlands as a whole is that i can go literally anywhere i want and i know it's going to be safe yeah. like that's the biggest difference is yeah. that i can i can bike out to ikea and it's safe i can go out to literally the end of town to an industrial park and it's safe like i went to an industrial park the other day and there is a there are roads and then they're broken down into streets to access the the warehouses and the facilities there. And there is a beautiful two-way bicycle path that cuts through that's completely separate from both of those things. So there, you're not running alongside the the road. If you if you go there by bike and the people who work there go there by bike, they come along a completely different route than the cars do. It's usually more direct, and they'll come right into where they can you know cycle to their work at the, the at a factory. Or at a warehouse. Well, at Strong Towns, we're planning this book tour around the the next book I've got coming out, and we have put on the map uh, the Netherlands. And mm. uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to make it happen or not. But <laughs> man, I want to go biking with you and hang out with you and your family, meet your wife, and yeah. uh, and enjoy. Well, you're you're uh, welcome. I would love to show you around. I'll, I'll take you out to an industrial park. And <laughs> <laughs> that would be a trip. That would be amazing. And maybe you know, someday honestly, you can come to Brainerd and we'll do a, an NJB live video from here then. Stream from here, yeah. That yeah. Sounds great. I'll have to do it at some point in time for sure. It's yeah. a strange world I've gotten myself into here, but I love it. It is. And I'm well, really, really thankful to Strong Towns for honestly helping me see the light. Um, thanks, man. In all this. Thanks yeah. for shining it back on us because I it, it's, it is... <laughs> It is uh, very affirming to see it again through your eyes, and I just encourage all of our uh, all of our members and all of our listeners uh, to go to Not Just Bikes on YouTube and watch these videos. I mean, you you will mm. really find something that not only I, I think is going to put things in a different uh, frame for you, but also content that you can share with people. I mean, I, I think that it's one thing to share an hour long podcast episode with someone. It's not one thing to share an article with someone, uh, but some people just want that video format and man, you've, mm -hmm. you've really given it life. So thank you very much. That's good. Jason Slaughter from uh, Canada, a world traveler, and now found a home in the Netherlands. The YouTube channel is not just bikes. Thanks, Jason. Thanks so much, Chuck. We'll talk again soon. And, and everyone listening, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt.
Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.